Amen. Thank you so much. Well, if you would turn to Acts chapter 2, and we want to look at uh, what the Lord wants to say to us this morning from this chapter as we continue to seek to answer the question, how do I live to please God in a culture that's increasingly hostile to Christians and increasingly pagan in its perspective on life? Obviously, uh, Galatians 5, 6 is one of my favorite verses because it's one of those statements in Scripture that is meant to summarize uh, what God calls us to do in every situation, in every circumstance, in every relationship. It says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Uh, That means the most important thing. Uh, What matters is faith working through love. And so God basically calls us to trust him. That trust is a rest in Jesus in light of all that he's done for us. What a savior we have. We can trust him with our sin. We can trust him with our failure to be all that we need to be. And we're to trust in terms of hope in God for the help we need, for the happiness we long for. So God calls us to trust him in resting in Jesus and hoping in God in every situation, every relationship, no matter what is happening in our culture. And he calls us to love, which involves submitting to God's word because God's word tells us what love looks like, right? He commands us to live in certain ways, to do certain things, and that's because that, that's what love looks like. And a part of that love is submitting to God's will, which means everything that's going on in our culture is ordained of God. And so in order for me to respond rightly to it and to love people in the midst of it, I need to submit to the fact that my father has ordained all that's happening and he's in charge and I can trust him. I don't have to be afraid because when I'm afraid, I don't love. I'm just responding out of fear. I'm reacting rather than responding in love. And so trust and love is what God calls us to. And all the Bible is a, is a, is a means of God communicating to us in what ways we need to trust him and what love looks like. And Acts chapter 2 is a beautiful picture of the early church. And so it helps us to see uh, how we're to live our lives, what love looks like in the church of God, or how it's supposed to look. And um, there's a story about uh, Henry Ford, who was married for a long time. He obviously uh, created, so to speak, uh, the Ford automobile. And um, he was married for 50 years, and somebody asked uh, Henry Ford, so what's the secret of your long marriage, which is typical, you know, whenever there's a long marriage, people want to know, so what's the secret, how how do you guys stay together so long? And his comment was, the formula is the same formula that I've used in creating my cars, and that is uh, stick to one model. (laughs) That's the way you're successful. Now, obviously, he's talking about being faithful to his wife, right? You know, you, you last 50 years by making sure you're faithful to that one woman that you committed to uh, many, many years ago. Well, I want to kind of play off of that in the sense of there, there is a model in Scripture. And the success of the Christian church as a body and us as individuals is very much a matter of sticking to the model, thinking about what is the model that we find in Scripture. And that's what a lot of people do with Acts. They look at the early church in the book of Acts and they say, that's the model we need to follow. That's 
That's what we need to be faithful to is the model that we see in this book. And that's true because I do think in Acts chapter 2, we see a model of the early church that we want to emulate. We want to understand, so what were the things that animated the early Christians? What were the kinds of things that shaped their lives? What were the kinds of things that um, they gave their lives to? I think we need to do that. But we need to do it um, thinking through all that the Bible says because some people will say, you know, we need to get back to the New Testament church. And uh, for whatever reason, I've come to want to ask the question, which church do you want to get back to? The church at Corinth or the churches in Galatia? And the, or the church of Laodicea, because Corinth was a church that had a lot of problems. Galatia, the churches were walking away from Jesus. Laodicea, Jesus said, I spew you out of my mouth because you're so lukewarm. So which New Testament church do you want to get back to? Which is simply a way of saying none of those churches were perfect. So if we're talking about getting back to a perfect model, then we don't understand what's going on in the book of Acts. Well, they might say, well, I'm not talking about those churches. I'm talking about what we see going on in Jerusalem in the book of Acts, like Acts chapter 2. And you could read Acts chapter 2 and think it was the perfect church and everything was wonderful and everything was great. And there were a lot of great things about it because God was doing a special work there. But the rest of the book of Acts, as well as the rest of the New Testament, lets us know that it wasn't perfect either because it's not very long in the book of Acts where you get to the point where Ananias and Sapphira are struck down by God and they're members of that church. You get to the point where the, the, the widows are complaining that they're being overlooked in the daily ministry of food. You get to the point where you find out that people from the Jerusalem church are going to the Gentile churches and saying, you have to be circumcised to be saved. And so it's just a reminder that as much as we want to look at the book of Acts and say, there's some things about what we see in the book of Acts that is a model for us. Let us not think that pursuing that model means everything's going to be perfect because it wasn't perfect then and it's not perfect now. But that being said, there's a lot we can glean from this and hopefully we will as we look at Acts chapter 2 as well as the rest of the book of Acts. So if you would look, I'm just going to do this. It's a long chapter and so instead of reading the whole thing all at once, I'm going to break it up for us. And so let's look first of all at the first four verses. Uh, Acts chapter one, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, obviously, this is flowing right out of, out of Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, Jesus commissions his apostles to be his witnesses. And he says, I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uh, came on the day of Pentecost, was, which was 50 days after uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And so he tells them, I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it says in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, this verse, uh, chapter 1, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to give you power. Power to do what? 
not to, um, you know, necessarily raise the dead. Some of them were able to do that, but not everybody. But everybody was to be given power to be witnesses, to speak. And that's exactly what we see happening in, in these first four verses. You have a, a noise like a rushing wind, but oftentimes in the Bible, the spirit is connected to the idea of, of the wind. Uh, Jesus says the wind blows where it wills, and you see the fruit of it. And that's kind of like the work of the Holy Spirit. So they have this noise like a violent rushing wind that comes into the house where they're sitting, 120 of them, as it says in Acts chapter 1. And then they begin to see tongues of fire um, distributing themselves, uh, uh, apparently appearing above each of them. Now, why tongues of fire? Because they were going to be empowered to do what? It says in verse 4, the Spirit was giving them utterance. They were being empowered to speak. Now, in this case, they were being empowered to speak a language that they didn't even know. That's not necessarily what the Lord's going to do for us today. Could he do that? If he wants to, he can do whatever he wants. But he still empowers his people today to speak. If there's one thing that most Christians will agree on, talking to unbelievers about the gospel is a very uncomfortable thing to do. It's not an easy thing to do. And there's all kinds of reasons for that, spiritual reasons and other reasons. And it takes the power of the Holy Spirit, for us to be bold enough to risk relationships and to risk uh, maybe even jobs or other things and identify with Christ and to love people. It takes the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so the first four verses highlight the fact that the Holy Spirit was sent to empower the people of God to speak the truth of God boldly and to share Jesus and to communicate that Because it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. In fact, you might get killed for doing it. And so it takes the Holy Spirit. But the reality is we can't even live any aspect of the the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. That's why the Lord Jesus in John 15 pictures the Christian life as a vine. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And so the the Christians are uh, branches that are connected to the vine. It's only through the vine that we're able to do, bear fruit as we should. And so it says in John 15, 4, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now, the do nothing there means bear fruit. Now, the reality is, literally, we can't do anything unless God gives us the power to do it. I can't, I can't walk unless God gives me that power. But Jesus here is talking in particular about bearing fruit, about being enabled to do the will of God, being able to live my life in a way that is pleasing to God, to be able to love God and love others as he calls me to. It takes God to enable me to do that. It's interesting, in the book of Isaiah, um, the Lord kind of speaks to our pride because um, we all tend to think that we do what we do and it's somehow the fruit of our own power, our own wisdom, our own goodness or whatever. That's the natural way to do it. And so that's why in different places in the Bible, God will remind us that um, we're more like 
uh, a glove than we are like a hand. We say, my hand can do things, but that glove can't do anything until the hand fills it. And that's why the Lord can say things like this in Isaiah 10. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it, or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. So he's talking about, in the context, people doing things. And he's comparing them to axes and saws and clubs and rods. He says the axe doesn't say, I'm a great axe, look at what I can do. Because that axe can't get off the ground unless somebody picks it up and uses it. And that's his point. That's the Lord's point in Isaiah 10. It's the same point that the Lord Jesus is making here is that uh, we're much more like a glove or an axe or a club. We have to have God filling us, enabling us to do what we cannot do on our own. And just like Sharon and I were talking about this before the service, that's why the Bible says pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean pray every moment of the day. It means continually look to God to do in you and through you what you cannot do on your own. That's exactly what praying without ceasing means. It's a continual heart of dependence on God, knowing that I cannot bear fruit. I cannot do God's will. I cannot love as he calls me to love. I cannot speak to those people in my life that need to know Jesus without him enabling me to do just that. Well, we go on, uh, look at verses 5 through 13. Um, This is what happens as a result of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, There was confusion. It says in verse 5, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, "Why, why, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in their own tongue, excuse me, in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying they are all full of sweet wine. And so he looked at that passage and it highlights the fact that when the crowds that were in the vicinity heard the noise of the wind, the sound like a wind, they came together. It says they were bewildered, amazed, astonished. Um, They continued in amazement and great perplexity, asking what does this mean? And the point that I want to make by this is uh, just to highlight the fact that God was at work and a lot of people were confused about what was happening. And the reality is uh, these were unbelievers that were confused, but there are other places in Scripture that says we as believers can be just as confused about what God is doing. For instance, when Luke uh, talks about uh, the appearance of the angel to Mary, In Luke chapter 1, it says, But she, Mary, was very perplexed at this statement. She didn't know what was going on as the angel began to tell her about what God's plan was. 
Uh, it says in uh, Luke 24 that when the angels appeared and there was no um, body in the tomb, uh, that the women at the tomb were perplexed about this. God was at work, but they didn't understand what was going on. In Acts chapter 10, Peter uh, has some visions as he's waiting for lunch, and it says he was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision he had seen might be. Even Paul, in writing the Galatians, because they're walking away from Jesus, he says, I am perplexed about you. I don't know what is going on here in your churches. And um, in this day and time, uh, in light of all that's going on in our country, one of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians 4, 8, which says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. Because I look at all the stuff going on in our country, and I am perplexed. The word perplexed there means uh, as if you're in a maze and you're not sure which way to go. You're not clear on what is happening. You're not sure how to respond to what is happening. And so perplexed, but not despairing. Why? Because we know my father, our father is in charge of the, the perplexities of what's going on. God's still at work. There's a fascinating passage in Isaiah 51 where the Lord is talking about um, what he was going to do in bringing the people out of exile. And he says, I won't read the whole passage, but he talks about uh, why are you afraid? Um, why, do, why do you fear what man's going to do? He says, have you forgotten the Lord, your maker? And he says, in the context of that in verse 15, I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. So if you just take what's going on there, um, what the Lord is saying is, I'm stirring things up. That's what I'm doing. I'm like a good chef in the kitchen. I'm baking some good food. But on the surface, what you see is chaos, just like the waves, they're all out of control. It looks chaotic. It looks confusing. Uh, it can be scary. And God is saying, you're looking at what's going on here, but you realize uh, I'm up to some good things. He says, the exile will soon be set free and will not die in the dungeon, nor will his bread be lacking. So he highlights the fact that there are things that appear to be very scary, and just like looking at the surface of what you're stirring up, it's maybe chaotic, but the Lord is saying, I'm up to good things. I'm up to things for my people that they will say, I've tasted of the Lord, I've seen that he is good. Because that's what God is doing. He's at work for his glory and for the good of his people. And so God stirs things up and it looks perplexing. But God says, trust me, I'm mixing things up, but I'm like the master chef. I'm cooking up some good food for my people, and I'm going to satisfy them. They will not lack the bread they need, figuratively or otherwise. And so that's what we see happening here is the idea of God working, and yet there's confusion in that. Well, if you look at verses 14 through 36, this is a long section here. Peter 
answers and corrects the idea of those who are saying, oh, they're just drunk. That's why they're talking like they're talking. They're talking out of their heads because they've had too much to drink. And so it says in verse 14, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne... He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did he did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so Peter responds to the accusation that they're just all drunk. And he says, that's not what's going on at all. He says, don't you remember what the book of Joel says. It says that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on God's people. And then he goes on to say, don't you remember that there was Jesus of Nazareth who was among you and it was by God's preordained plan that you put him to death, but God raised him from the dead. And that was also predicted in the Bible in Psalm 16. And 
when God raised him from the dead, he seated him at his right hand at the position of power and favor of rule over the universe. And he sent the Holy Spirit. And so the coming of the Holy Spirit is a testimony to the resurrection and ascension and rule and reign of Jesus, the one you crucified. Because the final thing he says is, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, the one that you crucified, Lord and Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, ruler of everything, and the only Savior, a Savior for your sin. And so what Peter does is basically argue from the scripture, this is how you make sense of what's going on. And that's what I want to encourage us with, uh, just by way of application. There's obviously a lot in there. I just want to focus on one thing. When things are perplexing, where do we go to figure out what's going on? Do we just watch CNN or Fox News? or uh, How do we figure out what is really happening in the world? And... These people were perplexed, and Peter stood up and said, let me tell you what's going on. And he quoted from Joel chapter 2 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. He said, this is what's going on. And we have to do the same thing. Uh, You might recall at the end of the uh, book of um, Luke, you've got um, the two men that are traveling from Jerusalem and they're walking along, and Jesus joins them. And they're sad. And Jesus joins them and says, so what are you talking about? And they say, have, have you been you know, under a rock somewhere? You're not aware of uh, what's been going on these days? And they talk about how Jesus, the Nazarene, was a mighty prophet, and the uh, religious leaders crucified him, and yet there's some women said that uh, uh, he was not in the tomb, and... And um, basically, they were trying to figure out what was going on. And what does Jesus say? He says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. He basically said, just think about what your Bible says. If you want to understand what's going on in the world, at least in the ways you need to understand it, you can't understand everything. We don't need to understand everything. But he's saying, if you really want to understand what you need to understand, apply the Bible to what you're going through. He says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And so there's a sense in which, um, I think it was Spurgeon who said, If you have your newspaper in one hand, you need to have the Bible in the other hand Uh, because that's how you're going to understand what's happening in the world, at least in the ways you need to understand it. And it's like going to an art museum and looking at modern art and trying to figure out what in the world was that guy thinking because I have no idea what that, that crazy picture is supposed to mean. Well, you look at the world sometimes and it feels like a crazy modern art piece and you wonder, what's God got in mind here? What's happening here? And Jesus says, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible, and you'll you'll be able to see what you need to see. You won't be able to know everything, but you'll be able to know enough to be able to trust 
and to love in those circumstances, which is all we need to know. Well, look, moving on to verses 37 and 40. Um, It says in verse 37, this is how they responded to Peter's message. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So Peter preaches a sermon, his first sermon, and he tells them what's going on is um, Jesus has been exalted over all things and he's sent the Holy Spirit. They're convicted of their role one way or the other in the crucifixion of Jesus and the rejection of the Messiah. And they ask the question we need to ask, what do I do? What do I do in light of what God is doing, what God has done? What do I do? And that's a question that if you're not a believer in Jesus, you certainly need to ask, what do I do in light of what God has done and in light of what God is doing? But even as Christians, we need to ask the question, what do I do do in light of what God is doing? And uh, it was uh, Martin Luther in his very first... um, point in his 95 theses, which he nailed to the Wittenberg church door, uh, was uh, all of the Christian life is a life of repentance. And so uh, coming to Christ involves repentance, and actually all of the Christian life involves repentance. What is repentance? Well, repentance is basically a change of mind that results in a change of life. But the Bible talks especially about the kind of turning or change of mind we need to have. It's a, t- a change of mind in which I, I go from looking to myself and things in this world to looking to God. It's a turning to God. And so every situation we're in, everything we, we go through, whether we're Christians or not, is a call to repentance. It's a call to turn to God for what we need. So you do that If you're not a Christian, then that's certainly what you need in order to be reconciled to God. But even as Christians, we're called to turn to God in every situation because saving faith is a faith that repents. Um, A good picture of this is uh, found in 1 Thessalonians 1, where it says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth. So that we have no need to say anything, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God, repentance, you turned to God from idols, instead of worshiping other things, you turned to God to worship him, it says to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Repentance is like um, following a map, are following your GPS. Now, for a while, we had a GPS that we used on our trips back to Louisiana and other places, and we got to a point where we called that GPS Edna. 
Now, Edna referred to one of Jan's relatives who um, actually, as she got older, was kind of um, out there. (laughs) And so Edna, our GPS, sometimes would just send us on wild goose chases, taking us places that we didn't want to go and just seemed to be without purpose. And so we got to the point where we weren't sure whether or not we should follow the GPS or not. Well, the reality is, whether it's a map or a GPS, it's calling us to follow. And that might mean uh, turn around, make a U-turn here because you're going in the wrong direction. And ultimately, faith in God is hearing God say, uh, you're going in the wrong direction. Trust me and go in a different direction. When we come to Christ, it's God working in us and opening our eyes to see we're going in the wrong direction. We're running away from God. And God calls us to turn around and go in the direction we need to go. But that's something that we're to experience every day as Christians. God is at work through his word by his spirit. Say, okay, you're headed in the wrong direction the way you're handling that situation at work or in your family, or whatever. And God calls us through his word by his spirit to turn around and go in a different direction, to trust him in ways we're not trusting him, to love in ways we're not loving. And so it's important that we realize that and see that um, it's like the Lord Jesus said, when people reported to him about those that Pilate killed and um, mingled their blood with their sacrifices, or when the, the Tower of Siloam fell and killed a number of people, people came to Jesus and said, what do you think about that? And Jesus said, I think you need to repent. That's what I think about that. Uh, what was he saying? He was saying, all that happens in this life in one sense is a call to all of us to turn to God. Because he said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So everything that's happening in our lives is meant to drive us to God, to move us to turn to God for what we need in those circumstances, uh, whether we're believers or not. Well, look at the last section. The last section is how they responded to Peter's call for repentance. In verse 41, it says, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so early on, I mentioned the fact that uh, Henry Ford was successful in his marriage because he was faithful to one model. And so I'm using that to ask the question in terms of Uh, faithfulness as a church or faithfulness as individual Christians, what is the model we're to be faithful to? What what is the kind of lifestyle that God calls us to live? Because one of the things that happens when things are perplexing 
is that oftentimes we can lose our bearing in the world. We can forget what it is that we're called to do, how we're called to live, and we can be overwhelmed with fear and concerns and just get very inward. And like Hannah was sharing earlier, uh, we can lose a vision for what it is we're supposed to be doing in this world to serve people, to love people, and we can just kind of uh, wall up and insulate ourselves because we're afraid of what is happening because things are so stirred up around us. And so I think it's helpful to think about what, what is the template for our lives or, or what is, the, uh, what is um, the Holy Spirit at work to mold and shape our lives into. And so just very briefly here, I just want to mention some things that I think come out of the picture that we find here in Acts chapter 2. It is exp- you know, ex- um, explained more throughout the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament. But the first thing is that obviously uh, the, the early church was concerned about spreading the good news. And the way I've put it in your notes is spread the good news in lip and life communication. Now, what I mean by lip and life is through our words and through what we do, how we live, that we're to communicate something, um, that our lives are meant to communicate a message. And so, obviously, the Holy Spirit was given that we might communicate, that we might both live the kind of life we're supposed to live, but that we might also verbalize why we're living the kind of life we're living, that it is because of Jesus. And so it says in Acts 2 and verse 40 that Peter Uh, With many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them. In Acts 8, it says that when the persecution started in Jerusalem, that the believers were scattered. And it says they went about preaching the word. Now, that doesn't mean they got behind pulpits like I am this morning. It meant they went about proclaiming or announcing the good news that there is a Savior named Jesus. And these were just everyday people. They weren't preachers. It's talking about just normal Christians. And so we want to pray that God would help us to embrace the idea that I'm meant to, in various ways, communicate to people what um, Peter talks about in Acts uh, 2, verse 36. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In our culture today, we have a great opportunity to say, on the one hand, Jesus is Lord, which means I will submit to authorities as long as they do not challenge my allegiance to Jesus. If you read through the book of Acts, that's exactly what the apostles did. They submitted to authorities unless those authorities were challenging them them, uh, to do things that they knew that the Lord didn't want them to do, or were exercising authorities in way their authority in ways that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords had not authorized them to do so. And so part of our testimony is, I am a part of the kingdom of God, and Jesus is my King, and I proclaim the authority of Jesus over everything. The second thing is, I proclaim the good news that all of us... Uh, have been provided a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus, and that I give at the same time the good news that even though we've fallen short of the glory of God, we can be forgiven 
of our sin through Jesus so that we're to testify in various ways through our lives that I know who rules over everything and his name is Jesus and I am ultimately submitted to him first and foremost and I also know that there's a savior from sin because there is a heaven and there is a hell and we need a savior and I know his name is Jesus and so we're to communicate that in various ways, and we're to pray that God would help us spread that news. Um, there's an interesting story that a missionary to Africa tells about a blind woman later in life who got saved, and she asked the missionary to get her uh, Bible in French to highlight John 3.16, to open the Bible to John 3.16 so she knew where to find it. And she went to a local school and she would meet the students coming out of that school and she would ask them, do you know French? Can you read French? And then she would say, if they said yes, would you read this for me? And they would read John 3.16. And then she would say, do you know what that means? And then she would tell them what John 3.16 means. And the missionary said, out of that, there were 24 boys that not only were saved but became pastors which means there were probably other people that got saved too but there were 24 boys that got saved and became pastors out of her simply saying could you read this and then asking do you know what that means and then telling them what that means which is just an illustration of as difficult as it is to be a witness for christ sometimes we make it more difficult than it needs to be So you think it has to be more uh, complex than maybe asking simple questions and maybe uh, explaining to people what we understand the good news to be and and praying that God would use that powerfully in people's lives. Well, very quickly, let me touch just briefly on the other aspects that we see uh, reflected here in Acts chapter 2. The second thing is, Not only should we be concerned about somehow spreading the good news, but we should also realize that we can't do that apart from God, and therefore we need to seek God. And in this passage, we see both the public seeking of God, and that's where we see them in the temple, gathering together in the large group. But we also uh, see this later on in other passages in the New Testament where There's the private seeking of God where it says things like what it says in Matthew 6. When you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret. So it's clear that God wants us to seek him both as we gather together in public, but also to seek him privately and to seek to know him and to really understand what his word says. Because that's what's going to transform our lives. I thought about the question this morning. Um, are we coming here simply to check a box? Or are we coming to check our lives? It's very easy to just get into the routine of either going to church or reading your Bible. And it's just about checking a box. Yep, I went to church today. Yes, I read my Bible today. Or am I checking my life? And am I checking my knowledge of God? Do I really know the God that I will one day stand in front of? What is my life like in light of the fact that I will give an account of my life to him, even as a Christian? 
that's the kind of spirit in which I think Martin Luther said that he read Romans chapter 1 and he said he beat on that that uh, verse day after day because he really longed to understand what it was that God wanted from him. And that's when God opened his eyes to see that God simply wanted him to trust in Jesus and not try to earn his salvation. And so seeking God needs to be kept uh, in view of what God says in Jeremiah 29, which we mentioned uh, earlier, I think Hannah did, where it says, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. In my private life, am I seeking God or am I just going through the routine? In my public worship, am I seeking God or am I just going through the motions? And God calls us to truly seek to know him and not to let go of him until he blesses us with the knowledge of him. We keep uh, seeking him privately and publicly. Another picture that we find uh, touched on in this passage is God calls us to share life and gifts in the community of believers. Obviously, in Acts 2, we see in verse 44, where it says, All those who had believed were together. They didn't just go their separate ways. They were together. And they, they shared, it says, uh, their property and possessions with each other as needed. And they were breaking bread from house to house and sharing their meals together. Later on in 1 Peter, it talks about if you have a gift, use it to bless other people in the body of Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we living our lives in such a way that not only are we meeting here on Sundays, but we're also sharing life together through the week? And are we using our gifts to grow this church in love? Consciously using our gifts to do that. Um, there's a parable that's told about uh, these animals that started a school. And the basic point of the parable, just briefly, is uh, the duck was being taught to do things that ducks don't do. And the uh, rabbit was being taught to do things that rabbit don't, rabbits don't do. And the eagle was being taught th- to do things that eagles don't do. And they were trying to get people, or they, excuse me, in the parable, they were trying to get the animals to actually be different than what they were designed to be. And the point of the story is all of us are different, but we're different for a purpose because God has gifted all of us in such a way that if we simply live our lives, share our lives together, we're not going off on our own, but we're sharing life together and we're seeking to live in light of how God has gifted us and wired us, we will grow in love together. And so it's important that I ask myself, is that part of my vision for life? Is that how I'm living today? Then next, um, just very briefly here, we're going to touch on all these things as we go through the book of Acts in, in greater detail. I just want to touch on it today. The next thing is showing compassion to the lost and the needy. Obviously, in Acts chapter 2, it talks about them sharing their property and possessions Uh, as anyone might have need. So within the body of Christ, there was sharing uh, according to need. But we see later on in Galatians chapter 6, it says, let us do good to all men, especially to uh, those who are of the household of faith. So we definitely should share with those who are in need in the body of Christ. 
but also with people outside of the body. And so we're called to be compassionate. And when we get into Acts chapter 3, that's where we see Peter and John going to the temple. They heal the lame man. And before you know it, he's walking and leaping and praising God. And so they do something that's a very practical thing to bless him. And as a result of that, they have the opportunity to share the gospel. And that's how I think it's supposed to work, is that as we seek to meet needs, we not only meet practical needs, but it gives us an opportunity to do what we're especially meant to do, which is to talk about Jesus. To say the reason why I do what I do is because of Jesus, not because I'm something great, it's because he's something great. That's why we do what we do. And so we can ask ourselves, do we have a vision for prioritizing some way, somehow, showing compassion to the lost people in our lives and to the needy people in our lives. How are we doing that? Am I praying about that? And then finally, um, we need to serve well in the common roles in our family, workplace, and world. This isn't really uh, highlighted um, in Acts chapter 2, but it's very much highlighted in the rest of the New Testament that it does matter as a witness for Jesus, how I treat my family. It does matter how I work on my job. It does matter what kind of neighbor I am in my community. And that's why Peter could say, yes, we're to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, but also keep your behavior excellent among the uh, the Gentiles as you seek to bear witness to Jesus. And so when it says in Acts chapter 2, they were having favor with all the people, I think the implication is they were having favor with their family because they they weren't mistreating their family and neglecting their family or or neglecting their job or neglecting their neighbors just because they were worshiping Jesus. No, it actually made them better family members and better workers and better neighbors. And that's why they had favor in the eyes of all of them. And so... um, the picture that we have in the New Testament is a picture in which all of life is meant to bear testimony to the Lordship of Christ and to the Saviorhood of Jesus. Let me just um, very quickly remind us of some things because we can be overwhelmed with all the things I just listed in your notes. Talk about what God calls us to do. Um, First of all, we're to remember Jesus lived the life that I just described perfectly. He lived it in our place, then he died on the cross for our failure to live that way. And so we don't have to live that way to be loved by God. When we trust in Jesus, he's satisfied all those things for us. And yet he still calls us to give ourselves to that. But the world, the flesh, and the devil don't want us to live that way. All the things I just described are opposed by my own flesh, by the world we live in, as well as the enemy of our souls. But the Holy Spirit was given to us not to only lead us to rest in Jesus in light of what he's done for us, but to enable us to live this way. And God promises to reward us with what our hearts long for. And even though none of us will live this way perfectly, God wants us to embrace this lifestyle no matter how crazy things get in this world, and he wants us to seek to grow. We're not going to be perfect. But I find in my own 
heart and life, the propensity just to be content where I am rather than growing in the ways I should grow. And so sometimes, last thing is, sometimes we can have the idea that I have to dream big, you know, I have to be a radical Christian and conquer the world or nothing. And there's a song that Jen and I heard uh, by a guy named um, Josh, what's his name? Josh Wilson, which I think is a better way of thinking about it. And his song is entitled Dream Small. And it goes like this. It's a mama singing songs about the Lord. It's a daddy spending family time the world says he cannot afford. These simple moments change the world. It's a pastor at a tiny little church, 40 years of loving on the broken and the hurt. These simple moments change the world. Dream small. Don't buy the lie you've got to do it all. Just let Jesus use you where you are, one day at a time. Live well. That's light of all that we just talked about. Loving God and others as yourself. Find little ways where only you can help. With his great love, a tiny rock can make a giant fall. Dream small. It's visiting the widow down the street or dancing on a Friday night with your friend with special needs. These simple moments change the world. Of course, there's nothing wrong with bigger dreams. Just don't miss the minutes on your way to bigger things because these simple moments change the world. So dream small. Keep loving, keep serving, keep listening, keep learning, keep praying, keep hoping, keep seeking, keep searching. Add up the small things and watch them grow bigger. The God who does all things makes oceans from rivers. Find little ways where only you can help. With his great love, a tiny rock can make a giant fall. Yes, five loaves and two fish can feed them all. So dream small, dream small. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we just wrap up this morning that you would... Help us to answer these questions. Uh, Can we say Jesus is Lord and Savior? Can we say Jesus is my Lord and Savior? If not, I pray, Father, that you would enable those here who cannot say that to say that, to embrace you, Lord Jesus, as Lord and Savior. May you also ask the question, am I living as if Jesus is Lord and Savior? Am I seeking to submit my life to Jesus as Lord? Am I seeking to rest in Jesus and proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior? In other words, help us, Father, to ask the question, am I seeking to be faithful to the biblical model for living as a Christian in a world that is increasingly perplexing? Help us not to be despairing and help us not to be disoriented. Help us to trust you and help us to embrace the vision for life that you've given us in your word and to flesh out our trust in you, to flesh out our love for you and for others. Please help us, Father. We just commit all these things to you. Prepare our hearts now for the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.